that was the kind of strength that was coming through this new way of working where I was creating these weird, restrictive spectacles. And the athletes wanted something and they couldn't quite get there because of either form or the situation I put them in. And it, they were the weirdest moments because they were both like awe. You were in awe of what you were seeing, but you were also like laughing about it. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 180th episode, we're back and we're joined by R. Eric McMaster, who comes to us from Austin, Texas. Eric is an interdisciplinary artist exploring a variety of 3D um, forms, including sculpture, installation, as well as performance and video and collaboration with other artists and performers and athletes. And we'll talk all about that coming up. But if you want to check out his work, it's rericmcmaster.com. And of course, follow him on Instagram at rericmcmaster. If you happen to be finding this podcast for the very first time, we just want to let you know it's a podcast where we speak with a variety of different artists from all over the country and world. They come on, they talk about their processes, their research, and all sorts of good stuff. And you can check out these casual interviews and conversations at studiobreak.com. Of course, we are on iTunes, so you can find us there. And, of course, you can follow us in a number of social media formats. So please like our Facebook page. You can follow our Twitter account. That's at studiobreak.com on Twitter and new and improved you have to follow us on Instagram so right now don't even listen to the episode go to Instagram and follow us at studio underscore break so please do that and of course you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at David Linaway so Please help us uh, spread the work that we're back and be sure to follow these new accounts. Again, we're kind of switching things around and hopefully we'll have a lot of new stuff coming up. So please stay tuned for that. And now that all these announcements are out of the way, we have this interview with our Eric McMaster. So stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Our Eric McMaster, how are you doing this morning? I am great. How are you? I'm excellent. You know, there's actually some sunshine in uh, Illinois, (laughs) which is kind of odd for this time of year. Um, Where are you at currently? I am in Austin, Texas, and uh, we just got a little bit of a a break in our heat. So uh, we are in our kind of mid-70s right now, which is like super comfort zone for for us. (laughs) Nice, nice. Yeah. And again, I guess just before I, I forget, I like to remind people it's com. So be sure to go check out uh, the videos maybe as, as we're and, and other works as we're kind of talking. Again, a lot of stuff to kind of digest, but, you know, it's always kind of helpful. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, you know, again, just starting out, you know, like I always try to get a nice background. So um, are you are you from uh, Pennsylvania by chance? Because I noticed that's where you went to undergrad. Yes, I am. I am from a, a small town in western Pennsylvania. It is about an hour and a half north of Pittsburgh. It was actually about two hours north of Pittsburgh when I was growing up because mm-hmm. of you know road improvements and all that kind of stuff. So I grew up on like a 280-acre farm uh, that had stopped working by the time I was three, I believe. Uh, and the, you know the land was like in the family for a long time probably about a hundred years by now, I would think. So I grew up in this like farmland, had no uh, kind of exposure to art other than through the three or four television, television stations that we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and of course anything in print that I could get like comic books, things like that. Grew up, you know, super small town, rural area, you know, went to a high school, school where everything you tried out for you were on the team because there wasn't even enough people to compete anyhow mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah grew up there my whole life and eventually went to penn state which is another small town in pennsylvania basically it's right in the center of pennsylvania and that's where i started taking art classes interesting you know and again just because of the nature of your work again a lot of it involves uh, athletics of some kind were you an athlete then just kind of growing up then in, in terms of where you're at as you said everyone made the team so yeah uh, so basically anything that you tried out for you were on so i uh, kind of took that as a, as a means to try basically everything uh, that i could so you know uh, i was in a jazz band through school. I was in a marching band. I was on the soccer team. 
I was on the basketball team, and I am a horrible basketball <laughs> player. I should just point that out. Uh, you know, I was on the track team. You know, it was like I kind of did any extracurricular that I could because it was school was my kind of uh, way to socialize with people because I, I was – the rest of the time I was in the middle of the woods, basically, you know, like that's where I grew up. My, my nearest neighbors were like a half mile away at least. And, you know, nearest kids that were my age were a good mile away. So, um, so school was like really this like kind of like way for me to socialize. So I think, uh, maybe not purposely at the time, but I think, um, subconsciously I I wanted to join all of these things to, um, kind of just be around other kids and stuff like that. So I did play a lot of sports. I wasn't great at a lot of sports. I was, I was pretty accomplished at, at soccer uh, and, and actually, like, you know, tried out for, like, college teams and things like that. Uh, didn't make it, but tried out for them. But, but yeah, so, so sports were a big background. Music was a big background for me. And, and then, of course, art. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do in art, but I knew that it was a major. And when I did go to college, uh, I, I knew I wanted to major in art. So. Well, it's interesting, too, because you're, you know, again, kind of talking about that social aspect of school and then also maybe not having really like any kind of formal experience with it. So, I mean, was there any kind of particular thing that you that kind of drove you that way? I feel like for myself, um, I think I was like a fine art major. And then I did so poorly that I was like, I'm going to do like art ed, uh, before coming back to it. But it's kind of weird to think about like, how do people pick majors when you're like 18, you know, or yeah. you know, oh, yeah. like, how do you choose? Like, yeah, this is what I want to do for sure. As I, as I kind of said, I was, I was into a lot of different things. I wanted to just start a band and, you know, move, move down to Pittsburgh, start a band, you know, be some sort of rock star or something. And my, my parents kind of gave me this ultimatum of like, Hey, you know, like, we'll we'll keep you on the health insurance plan if you go to, to school. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, of my three interests, you know, between sports, uh, music and, and art, I was like, all right, you know, art has a major. I went to school thinking that I would become like a comic book illustrator or perhaps like a, like an illustrator for like magazines or something like that. And, um, got into undergrad while I was good at drawing for the town I grew up in. I found out very quickly that I was not that great of a, a, a drawer. <laughs> like I could not draw that well and I could not paint very well. And basically anything that was 2D, I could not do it very well. And I also didn't really have the interest in it. Uh, so about two years into school, I had um, a summer job where I was just like this maintenance man on this like uh, this factory that they made like like um, prefabricated homes. Uh, but I, I was like the maintenance person, so I was like uh, I helped the main maintenance people like fix things. And in that summer, I, I realized this like power of manipulating materials, you know, because one day we had to chop a hole through the one side of the, the factory wall and, and install like a garage door. And like the, the, the fact that, that I was in such awe that you could just take a material like that and without any instructions or anything like that, just like drill through it, start cutting through it and kind of figure out your way how to manipulate that material. That when I came back to school and I started taking uh, sculpture courses, I realized that this material manipulation became really, really important to me. So I started taking more and more sculpture classes. And when I did, I found that this drive that I had seen in all my, uh, you know, painter friends and, and my friends that were drawing, uh, like that seemed so elusive to me, like finally kind of appeared right, uh, through material manipulation. And I, and I found myself spending more and more time, uh, making things and more and more time on my artwork and shifting, you know, all my interests that had still continued like sports or, or, um, music, all of a sudden I was, I was taking time away from those things to focus more and more and more on art making. Well, and did that kind of also kind of bring on like a new set of appreciation for, I guess, just diff different artists, were there like artists in particular that you were, you know, kind of drawn to or kind of influenced by at the time then as you're kind of like un unlocking this world, if you will? I'm going to kind of dance around that uh, <laughs> question for a little bit. Um, but 
when I went to school, when I initially went to school, I, um, I was really into like comic book illustrators. You know, I could name like tons of people by, by name and, and uh, knew their work and would collect them just based on, not on story, but based on just artwork. I, I had no exposure to actual like artists that were showing in like museums or galleries or anything like that. You know, again, like the nearest city was, was two hours away from both where I grew up and where I went to school. So, um, we had, you know, about two years in to undergrad, uh, Vito Aconci came to give a talk at our school. Mm-hmm. And until that point, I thought my value in an artist was how well I could render something, be it through sculpture, be it through drawing. And that's how I judged artists because that's how it was in my comic book land, right? Like, sure, there's like styles and things like that, but it's about like being able to tell this story through drawing. And anyhow, so Vito Conchi came and he gave a talk and, he, you know, he's <laughs> he's talking about masturbating underneath a stage and he's talking about like these audio performances he did and these video uh, performances where he's like following people around on the street until they noticed he's fall- he's they're being followed and and just all this crazy stuff. And I just remember like as a 19 year old hit with something new, just doing the complete freak out and being like this, how is this art? Like, and just being really, really mad about it. And in retrospect, I found that that was like really a big turning point in my life was not because I, I was super into video country's work, but because um, I, I was angry because I didn't know anything about it. Right. Like I was angry because I didn't understand why that was considered art. So later in life, I, I joked that Vito Conchi kind of saved my life. <laughs> but uh, that was a really big um, lecture uh, that that had a, a big impact on my trajectory, certainly, for sure. It made me stop and think about what I was doing and stop and think about the larger context that exist, that existed outside of the small town that I was learning in. Not to not to belabor the 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 undergraduate work too much, but I mean, was this something then that kind of like opened up the the work for you in terms of like what you could do? Because I again, I could imagine maybe making something maybe more playful or something that might have more questions in it. Or see, this is one of those things where I want to re-edit and be like, this sounds awful. What am I saying? <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, what what kind of things then were you making? Well, uh, I, you know, like like anybody that's like nineteen or 20, I didn't have that much to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I hadn't had much life experience. And I certainly did not have much cultural experience, uh, especially, you know, in relationship to the arts. So I was kind of going through uh, class assignments for the longest time. And then I took a, you know, keep in mind, this is like 1999 or something. I took mm-hmm. a Photoshop <laughs> course and I took this Photoshop course, Photoshop, at that time was something that didn't fit within any major. Right. So, so there, like there was no default major for, because photography was certainly like a hands-on practice at that, at that point of developing film and exposing and all that kind of stuff. And all the other things were like really, really hands-on. And then all of a sudden we have this like computer thing that no one knows what to do with. So it was just this like little extra course, but anyhow, I took this Photoshop course and then started combining the things I had learned in that course with my sculptural work. And when I did that, I didn't wait for an assignment. I uh, just kind of did what I thought was like natural. So, you know, back then I was just, I was replicating kind of goods that you could buy. And, and so I, I would make a sculpture and then, and then do the packaging for it uh, on the computer and print it all out and put it together. And these goods were actually like what I was doing was reframing my artwork as miniature so that, you know, my previous artwork I was framing as miniature to kind of sell and kind of went along these lines of like um, this idea of like manipulation, which, which uh, kind of carried these ideas of like manipulating oneself to appease like a, you know, to have a commercial value of some sort, you know, there's a lot of reality TV at the time uh, going on, you know, reality TV, like, wow, maybe interesting at the time, like the, the people on it were always kind of seemed a little, a little empty, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I wanted to kind of reflect that in my work. So I, so I framed myself, I framed my artwork, uh, as these like kind of like cheap little things that could be products. And, th- and that's basically like how I ended my, 
my time at uh, undergrad was with those those types of work. Well, and so kind of following that, then I mean, did you did you wind up then kind of like choosing to to move on to to complete your graduate degree right away, or did you take a job, uh, you know, uh, doing construction, figuring out how to build garages through other spaces, yeah, <laughs> stuff well, like that? Um, you know, I've had some interesting jobs in the past, uh, including working for a funeral funeral director. But after after undergrad, when I graduated. You know, I came from a small town, and uh, my my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, she came from a small town, and and so there was no place for our, us to move in terms of like job prospects and things like that it, that that we were familiar with. So we we kind of just made the decision to move to Austin, Texas, uh, which is where I live now, but in a kind of unrelated way. I made it back here. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> But we moved to Austin, Texas, just because it was a city, and that was that was like the first city I had ever lived in. Uh, and of course, we didn't know anybody or anything like that. When we first moved here, I got this job working at like Blockbuster, uh, which is funny because it doesn't even exist anymore. And that was when I really knew that I wanted to go to graduate school, not because the the job was so horrible, but because my, all my free time. I was like in the garage just making stuff. The amount of work I had from undergrad I made in one year in one you know one year out and that's with working like a full-time schedule and things like that. So I totally knew I wanted to go to uh, grad school and I also had this moment where I was getting frustrated with my my ability to make things. I always wanted to make some things really really tight. You know, I wanted them to mm-hmm. be somewhat perfect. And um, so when I started looking at grad schools, I was looking at uh, grad schools that had a process called rapid prototyping, which now we know to be like 3D printing. Mm-hmm. And and of course, there were only a few schools at that time that had um, access for art majors. Uh, and I applied to a few of those schools and, and got in at, at Arizona State, which is in Phoenix. Actually, it's, it's like a town beside Phoenix, but uh, moved to the desert then. Uh, to go to grad school. So again, so you move on. You're gonna you're gonna start your your uh, graduate degree. Um, a loaded question. What was that experience like? But you know, like to start out, because I would imagine again, there's you know all these changes like you're talking about. I know for myself when I went to graduate school, it's like you can do this. What's you know what's a large format printer? You know, and it seems funny now because even you know in, in the span of me graduating in 2007 with my MFA there's just so much that changes from like a technological standpoint and i'd imagine maybe that would be something that also you know as you're kind of starting your MFA degree new processes new techniques new ways of doing things um might come to light so i went to graduate school for 4 years uh it was a 3 year program but you had the option to extend it uh you know and it was funded and all that kind of stuff so why not extend it so i went for 4 years and the and i basically divide my grad school experience into into two year sections the first two years and the last two years and um the first two years again i was, I was you know relatively young not a lot of life experience. I had started moving around and, you know, and moved from Pennsylvania to where I'd grown up my whole life, you know, to Austin and now to Phoenix. You know, so I'm halfway across the country and I'm living in cities, which was like a big, big deal because it, that gave me like two things. It gave me uh, this exposure to artists and exposure to like uh, culture, right, that I didn't have my whole under, undergrad experience. And it also made me, in, in my perspective, growing up in the country, you, you had this connection to land and you had this connection to work, but you didn't necessarily have a lot of value built on like, like money, mm-hmm. right? Like, like the, there's a difference between work and money. Like you worked really, really hard. And that was a point of like pride, mm-hmm. but how much you made really didn't matter. Or at least I, I, that's how I kind of felt when I was there. And then when, when you live in the city, money becomes such an important thing. Or at least it seemed like, you know, because, first of all, rent compared to living in a rural area is like crazy. Sure, sure. <laughs> right? but, but, also, but also that's how you kind of judge your jobs. You know, like you have such an option in terms of like what jobs you can get and things like that. That, that there was this kind of concentration on money that I found that people in the city tended to kind of focus on. And I, and I, and I know that's a, that's a horrible 
overgeneralization. And I don't think that's a reflection of the people I was meeting or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, in my mind, that's what I was kind of seeing is like all of a sudden I was becoming very aware of like money and and things like that. And I was also becoming aware of like people that that were really cool in undergrad and like really fun to be around. And then they have these really boring jobs mm-hmm. <laughs> like after they get out and kind of like it seemed to me like they were kind of buying into this system of like I have to get a job that makes a lot of money and it doesn't matter if, if that's like a fulfilling job or not, you know. And so, so anyhow, that was, that was a big shock to me, or at least that was something that I was observing and that came out a lot in the work that I was making. So all my, my first two years I was using, I was using sculpture to kind of approach this theme of, um, of like selling out basically, Mm -hmm. uh, like the idea of selling out or uh, allowing your reputation or whatever to, to be in the hands of someone else in exchange for money. That was like something that I explored a lot. But, but again, it's not like I had a lot of like experience with this. It was kind of this surface exploration of a, of a subject that I just didn't have that big of a personal connection to. I was ob- observing it certainly, but, you know, uh, not really like living that. So it was, it, I, I feel like the, the first two years in grad school were a little unconnected to, to me. The other thing that happened in grad school is I, I was around so many, as you said, so many new things, like so many new techniques and things like that. So it was really easy for me to kind of like go along with this default concept of selling out, right? And uh, and then just use techniques to kind of explore that. So I was learning, you know, how to 3D scan things, how to 3D model things, how to 3D print things. I was, I was uh, expanding on my mold-making techniques. I, I learned how to make neon, uh, mm-hmm. like neon signs and things like that. Uh, so I learned all these, like, really technical things. But right about at two years, I had a visiting artist come in, and he asked me a really simple question that I just couldn't answer. And he, he the question was, what are your hobbies? <laughs> and I just... I, I mean, I, I stammered like I had nothing to offer him back because <laughs> I was so into these techniques, right? Like I had absorbed myself in these techniques. And and I think, you know, in a roundabout way, I think what that question was really asking was like, you know, what are your hobbies? And, you know, like, why are you making artwork about something that you're not actually invested in, you know, or, or that you're not familiar with? Mm-hmm. And um so, so that was a big uh, kind of turning point. That was right about two years. You know, I took that to heart quite a bit, and I, I decided that I was going to reapproach sports. You know, I had a, I, there was uh, one person in grad school that was playing on a, a, a co-ed uh, field hockey team. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, I'll try it. You know, like it was a, it was a, you know, I knew a few people there, and I had a time and total new sport to me, and all this kind of stuff, and and so. I go out and I play this this field hockey thing for about a month, and uh, my coach, like the coach of the team, was uh, very forgiving of like all the mistakes that I would make mm-hmm. as as I played. So we we went to our first tournament, which was out in California, and uh, I I played, and and within like the first few minutes, I I got called for a for an offense, like, like a ball hit my leg or something like that, which is against, against the rules. And some of the call, like, so I, I, I kept on getting called over and over again, almost to the point that every single time I touched the ball, I was getting called for, for a rule infraction. So within about 10 minutes of that, I had gone from this really, really aggressive player, you know, like, like, uh, the position I was in, you, you had to be, I was in a scoring position. So you kind of have to be aggressive to play that. Uh, I went from that to being really, really timid. Like instead of like sprinting all out, I'd probably go like half speed. Cause I was afraid I was going to get called for like pushing somebody or something. Mm-hmm. This is like a 10 minute experience of where I went from where my behavior completely changed from super aggressive to super timid. And I realized that all that stuff I was talking about in my previous artwork, that, that, the idea of manipulation, the idea of like manipulating through like some sort of idea uh, that's bought into was right there in that game that I was playing. 
just the sound of a whistle was changing my behavior in such a way I realized, oh my goodness, this is what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So with that, that was a really, really strong experience. And that, and that happened, like I said, right about two years into grad school. And I, from there on, I was like, okay, I need to focus on sports. Uh, I need to focus on this experience that I, that I actually have, you know, that I actually went through. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, was there like a cataloging then of like all these past experiences or were they always kind of like more focused on, you know, something that you currently did? I sort of imagine you like, you know, going out to play pickup basketball games now and getting smoked. But <laughs> um, <laughs> were they all kind of like historical or, or kind of more like what you're dealing with at the time or like? Yes and no. I think I think at first I I noticed what was happening to me and I didn't. I, I didn't yet have a, a, a language to kind of deal with it. So I, so I turned to, you know, different books and things like that. There's, there's a whole like sub sociology study on sport uh, that, that has a plenty of readings and, th- and things like that associated with it. You know, uh, sport has been used through the years as a means to kind of like condition people. Uh, so Nazi Germany used had a sports program that basically would breed soldiers that wouldn't question things. In the the 1900s, stickball uh, was moved off the streets and called baseball and sponsored by by factories because uh, factories needed workers that would, like, give themselves to a team. Someone's first reaction to sport might be, like, either as entertainment or either or as something that they participate in that they, they get joy out of. And that's certainly something that's that's um, that's there, but there's also this subcontext in sports where you're entering, uh, by your own will, you are entering into a system that manipulates you. Okay, if you're playing a sport and somebody throws a ball at you, at your torso, you're probably going to catch that ball or dodge out of the way or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But if you throw the same or if you throw a ball at a soccer player, they're not going to put their hands in front of them. Right. Like they're going to put their hands off to the side and try and chest the ball down or something like that uh, for fear of being called for a handball offense. So someone's initial reaction, like someone's initial thing that that they want to do gets curbed to a point uh, in sport where it's no longer their initial reaction. You know, like, like think about football. If somebody tackled you on the street, like you'd either get up and, and run <laughs> or you turn and fight. Right. Like those are like the two things. But like in football, like think about how much restraint that is to just repeatedly just be, you know, hit by another human being and not uh, retaliate in any way, you know, like or at least in any way that's uh, immediate or direct. And I think that 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 just that kind of curbing of of initial response was really really interesting to me in sport and and of course i didn't know how to deal with that in my artwork at the time and i and i so i tried defining all the roles in sports uh and i would do projects installation projects around that i would try doing just sculptures uh that were kind of sports related anyhow i tried uh approaching it different ways i was living in phoenix Phoenix has a very complicated, like complicated issues with illegal immigration. And Phoenix is pretty aggressive in the way that they, they treat illegal immigrants. And, or at least they were at the time. Uh, I'm pretty sure they still are. But anyhow, so I saw, I saw this happening and I wanted to um, kind of respond to this political thing that was going on. Um, but I wanted to do it through sport. And one of the things that I like about sport was that, that duality between play and, and manipulation. So I wanted to kind of capture that I, I hired uh, illegal immigrants to play a soccer game mm-hmm. and documented that uh, as a means to you know talk about all the things that were going on in Phoenix at the time. And um, and I you know I paid them for their time and stuff like that. We had lunch and I talked to a number of them as, as we did this, this project. And um, that was a real turning point in, in what I did because I kind of steered away from traditional art making practices. So like drawing, sculpting, things like that. I, I, or sorry, I didn't really draw. Let me take that back. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I turned away from photography and from uh, sculpture, which were the kind of the two things that I was exploring. And I just did this like performance slash documentation of the performance and found that uh, the narrative that I was creating and, and the narrative that was con- you know conveyed through the documentation, it was a s- strong way for me to get across uh, what I, I wanted to talk about. Um, which was, you know, manipulation, the duality between play and manipulation, and and talk about like different different uh, hierarchies that exist both in society but are echoed through sport and things like that. So uh, that was a really big turning point for me. And then like three months later, I had to do my thesis show <laughs> too. So so I did a follow up project where I made these see through. Uh, sports uniforms out of either acrylic, which is, you know, like plexiglass or uh, vinyl. And they were completely see-through uniforms, but they were like football players and, and or a football uniform or a hockey goalie uniform, you know, things that involve a lot of padding. So, you know, the, the, the padding is often seen as, as both protection, but sometimes as intimidation, right? When you are like staring down an opponent and your shoulders are six inches higher than what they should be, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, that's a form of intimidation. So I wanted to take those things and basically make the wearer of them a little vulnerable. So I used nudity to, to make the, the wearer vulnerable. I recruited uh, athlete, like actual athletes, to wear these uniforms, and then did a photo series for my my thesis work. Uh, that that basically, you know, made this comparison between, first of all, the individual versus the collective, and then of course the the vulnerable versus the the powerful. Would you say that kind of like, kind of is um, something that you're still kind of like working through? Then are are these various systems and hierarchies of uh, sports, athletics, um, and then kind of like um, I don't know examining them in some new way for each of the the projects that you might kind of make those themes have run uh through my work since you know so i'm about just just to give a a sense i'm about what like nine years out of grad school nine or ten years out of grad school at this point after grad school i you know got my first job which was pretty demanding and i saw certainly saw like a lull in the amount of work that i was producing at the time but after about like two years or so i i I got back into it at the you know same kind of rate that that I'm at now, and exploring those hierarchies uh, was was really what I did in, until about 2013 or so. I was really really interested in how you could take someone uh, who who is is meant to be powerful on field. But then is like because of the rules of the game is restricted in such a way, and 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 that was that was such like a powerful kind of like uh, theme that I wanted to continue to explore. So, kind of looking back at my sculptural background, I I wanted to manipulate a person through object rather than situation, right? Yeah. So you know, sports, you're in a situation where you're manipulated, but like, how could you use sculpture to ma- manipulate a person? So uh, the next kind of big project that I that I did, I built a hockey rink that was, uh, you know, maybe 10% of the size of a real hockey rink. So the hockey rink was about 20 feet by, oh, 20 feet by like 12 feet by about 7 or 8 feet tall, mm-hmm. you know including the glass. And I put two full hockey teams in that rink and had them play a game. <laughs> and when I first started the project, I was, I was all about like manipulating these individual players, but because of the, the chaos that had happened, cause these, the, the hockey players were basically like shoulder to shoulder uh, in the rink. And um, so they're, you know, they were just running into each other and all of this chaos Basically, the documentation of it created like more of like a, a texture where you didn't see necessarily every individual, but you kind of saw this hole, and this hole was uh, was uh, like a spectacle to to see. You know, it was like everything was contain- contained and shrunk down into this this rink that you know amazingly matched the 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 width of the camera frame, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like whereas before I was exploring the individual, I realized that I had done to the actual sport itself, the act of like performing the sport, I had manipulated it through form, 
uh, I had I had created an object that took all the grace and all the awe of the sport and had taken it away. I think that we get used to narratives that we see. And, and sport has this narrative of you don't really know what's going to happen, but you know that someone's going to win, someone's going to fail at something. There's going to be some sort of breakdown and there's going to be some sort of like awe-inspiring moment that happens in sports, right? Like the, these are narratives that we see over and over again uh, play out. And, you know, that's also what makes a good game, right, is if it, they have all those those components. And when we see that narrative kind of get disrupted, there's two ways that we can kind of react to that. There, we can be in awe of the spectacle that we're seeing, or we can kind of react with humor, or we can, we can find it humorous uh, when it breaks from that narrative. And I found that that was the kind of strength that was coming through this new way of working where I was creating these weird restrictive spectacles and the athletes wanted something and they couldn't quite get there because of either form or the situation I put them in. And it, they were the weirdest moments because they were both like, awe. you were in awe of what you were seeing, but you were also like laughing about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I, you know, I did that hockey piece I did a, a number of other uh, projects in that show, one of which was I wanted to do this thing where I separated a pair of figure skaters. And I found this pair that were training to go to, to the Olympics. And um, they, they had uh, dual citizenship, so they were, they were most likely going to compete in the Olympics, either for the, for the, the U.S. or for... I think it was like Singapore or something, but they're more or less almost guaranteed to go. And I wanted to do a project with them. So I had been talking with them for a few months. It takes a while to convince people sometimes to do these projects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I was talking to them for a few months and, and trying to wrap things up and, and they had some competitions and stuff. So in the last competition before I was going to go meet with them, the the woman of of the pair was injured and it turned out to be like a career ending uh injury you know which was completely devastating to them and and also you know i i wasn't going to be able to do my my project with them either i tried to find other skaters and things like that and then at some point i realized oh well but that's what i'm talking about that this disruption in this narrative right like this this disruption and expectation. So I, I called back the, the male performer of, of the group and asked him to skate his routine without his partner. And, and you have to realize like the intensity of, of this routine is that they had choreographed it all by themselves. They had designed all the costumes by themselves. They were competing, you know, they were competing this at the highest stage that you can in your career, you know, like that was the goal of this, this thing. And, and so I, I documented him performing his routine without his partner present. Uh, and it was actually the last time, like we did multiple takes, but it was the last time that he had ever performed that routine. So knowing that like it, at the end of that, he put away that outfit that they had to design, you know, that was the last time he was going to do that choreography and things like that. And um, the, the piece itself uh, was in the same show as the hockey rink and um kind of did not like the hockey rink was just you know the rink was in the gallery there's a giant projection you know it had all this humor to it uh so it kind of took the attention away from that piece but that that piece uh kind of stuck with me for for a long time uh after i made it just because of like the the uh again it like the documentation, there's humor because you see him make believe pick somebody up above his head, right, <laughs> and spin around. But there's also this like really, really deep sadness in it, uh, and and it's all because this narrative uh, got disrupted in a way. That that humor aspect of it, I think, is also something that makes it, um, I don't know, really inviting, you know, or something that kind of kind of might be something like as maybe a first take, depending on the the viewer. But then, you know, to kind of think about that nuance you know, after, after you're sitting with it for a bit. Mm-hmm. And again, it's interesting as a, as a maker to kind of maybe think about too, all the, all the things that you kind of have to, I guess, do in terms of preparation and then piecing everything together so that it, 
you know, comes off, you know, like, like just building a, Building and installing a, a miniaturized hockey rink uh, in a gallery in a couple of days, probably, I don't know, that's got to be a lot of stress. <laughs> yeah, 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 certainly. <laughs> I mean, I, to rewind a little bit in, in relation to this is that uh, one of the things I was learning in grad school is that I wasn't invested in form enough to really be a good sculptor. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I was interested in context uh, and in the material of the the materials I used interest me, like the nar- kind of like the narrative elements of the materials interested me, but like I wasn't very invested in, in form, uh, which in the Southwest, that's, there's a lot of, you know, with all the, you know, the earthworks and things like that, like uh, people are very invested in form there. And I found that by, by making miniature hockey rinks <laughs> and by making, you know, later, uh, you know, I made, I've made like custom pummel horses and, and things like that. Like by making these kind of props that are used in performance or in videos, it's giving this, uh, kind of narrative to the object, uh, that, that gives a value to the object that, that kind of hits my interests of, of narrative and context rather than uh, having to consider form as much, if that makes sense. How does one then kind of coordinate, um, you know, a piece like uh, a change in atmosphere, which is maybe something that you're kind of alluding to, which is uh, the palm of horse, you know, in terms of making that. But then, like, is that something that you have to then, how do you coordinate shooting that underwater or explain <laughs> that down, explain that to, to a person that doesn't, doesn't understand anything yeah. about it? <laughs> You know, that, I, I think that's a good piece to um, really run through my process <laughs> because my process has a lot of different layers to it and um, and involves a lot of different things, at di- you know, that are happening all at the same time. In, in general, I tend to kind of get this flash of an image or a flash of a like um, a juxtaposition of, of two things, right, that, that don't make sense that have a lot of power to them, you know, and I can get these like visually, or perhaps it's like just this like, two words that like kind of stick out or something like that. And then I start to build this image of like what those two things would, would work out to be. And rather than draw it or sculpt it or something like that, I think about like, how can I capture this on camera or, uh, you know, through the lens, I should say, uh, the, the piece that you're referencing is, is the, the, the underwater gymnast piece uh, for, you know, it's called change in atmosphere. And basically with the hockey rink, I was using form to manipulate the participants. And with, uh, for the next, you know, major piece that I did, I wanted to use the environment, uh, the actual environment to manipulate, uh, the athlete. And I was thinking, you know, like water is a resistance. Like when you're moving through water that you're, you're facing much more resistance than, than if you're moving through air, uh, not to mention, you know, the messiness of breathing and all that kind of stuff underwater. But so I saw this, um, at, at public pools, they have, um, this chair that they lower into the water to help people that, that can't walk well or can't use the, the stairs or, or the ladders very well. They have this chair that kind of lowers people slowly into the water. And the chair is uh, polyethylene, which is a just, I mean, it's a white plastic. It's a white, soft plastic. And it's basically aluminum, right? Like those are the two materials. It's like a shower chair, right? Like it's just made to go into the water. You know, the hockey rink, I was, I was kind of just replicating an object, uh, except on a smaller level. And for this one, I wanted to make a very purposeful sculpture for the environment. So I wanted the, the environment to be first and foremost in this, this performance. And then I wanted the objects to cater to the environment. And then, of course, the person to interact between the objects and the environment. So I built a pummel horse that was meant to go underwater. Uh, so it's built out of high-density polyethylene, uh, which is the same stuff as, like, shower chairs. It's built out of aluminum and then stainless steel. And every component of that, like, I made by hand, uh, except for the, the hardware. So even the handles, I I, I run a uh, digital fabrication lab that has 3D printing and, and milling machines and, and all sorts of fun stuff. So I milled the handles out of blocks of aluminum, uh, so that they were, you know, like these really sturdy things that could go underwater. 
I curved the plastic so that you could bend it in such a way that it resembled the pommel horse. And I built this thing. And as I was building it, I was trying to recruit a gymnast. When you're recruiting people uh, to do these things, it, it takes a, it takes a while. Like that's, I think that's the hardest part in all this is getting the people on board with the project, Mm -hmm. especially people that haven't had exposure to the arts because, you know, they, they take their craft very, very seriously. Right. Uh, uh, as, as does an artist, as does anybody, right? Like you, you take your craft very, very seriously. And the last thing that, that, uh, the participant participants want is for me to be making fun of their craft or to make, you know, to, to frame them in such a way that like devalues their craft. And, and so I take that very seriously, but so anyhow, uh, I, Ended up finding a person uh, that uh, was interested. I talked to him, but then we just could not get the dates to work. He had this, you know, few month block where he was going to be touring, and, and so so I asked him to put me in touch with anybody else that he knew that had similar skills. And amazingly, he knew like an actual competitive gymnast that was competing in pommel horse. Uh, so, you know, the the guy I was originally working with had competed. At, in his youth, but now was uh, just more of like a performer uh, for like stage events and things like that. But he put me in contact with this guy who's like a, a regional competitor. Like he he's places in the top three or four people, everything that he competes in uh, for, for pummel horse. And he was totally into the idea. So uh, I had him come in. He's, he's from Houston. He drove into Austin. There's a, there's a pool on Austin uh, at, University of Texas's campus that has an underwater viewing window, uh, and it's for training swimmers and things like that. But after about two or three weeks of me pestering them, they finally gave me permission to film <laughs> there with with a few you know um, stipulations, which included like you know bringing lifeguards on board. We had there was a strict like breath holding rule that we had to follow, which apparently is a big issue in competitive swimming. Because uh, people hold their breath until they pass out sometimes. And anyhow, so we we jump through all these hoops. We get this 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 thing, and then I I bring in about a four person crew to help me lower things into the water. You know, some of these people know how to use cameras really well. Some of these people are 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 just muscle to get it in, and, and other people I have running around the scenes, kind of documenting behind the scenes what's what's happening, and. You know, we, we shoot it and, and I had all these plans of doing multiple camera angles and things like that. And I got the footage back and what we had him do is just run through his full routine, which on land is 40 seconds. And in, uh, the water, it was eight minutes, eight and a half minutes because he would have to take breaks to, to breathe. He would, you know, he's using the opposite muscles than what he usually would. You know, usually you're pushing yourself up in the water. You're pulling yourself down because of your own buoyancy. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, it took eight and a half minutes for him to complete this. And, and I got the footage back and I saw that like straight on shot. And I was like, okay, we, we do not need any cuts. Like this is like the awkwardness in this, like that moment where you, you're filled with both awe and humor is coming from this single shot you know, like of seeing how difficult it is to take a 40 second routine and perform it underwater. I'm curious then. So what was his take on it then after kind of completing it, you know, as, as being the participant, did he have any feedback? And, Cause it's again, like awkward is the perfect word. <laughs> like during the filming, he was really, really in, like, he really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and I found that with the ice skater too. When I worked with the ice skater, you know, these are, these are people that, find physical challenges very, you know, very appealing, right? I'm basically having them do something that they would never do in their lives, right? Uh, and so I think there's a lot of like short-term value in that for the for the participants, or at least it seems like there is. You know, I've worked with some musicians recently and, and they were really excited about like just this fact that they were performing in a different way. Um, you know, the athletes certainly find it a challenge, you know, to do these things and, and, and find value in the fact that they can kind of conquer these ideas. So in the short term, I, I certainly think that they, they get a lot back and, and we, we do have some exchanges afterwards too. And 
And then a lot of, out of curiosity, a lot of the athletes do check out the, the shows if they're able to, because I, I do show uh, across the United States. So it's, it's kind of, um, it really depends on where the show's going sometimes. But um, I always t- try to invite the athletes, especially if it's in their hometown or something like that. And I always share the documentation afterwards. And I think that, like, you know, it ranges from people that are very curious about it people that are very um, kind of flattered that the project is about them. Uh, and then, uh, and then of course, people that are, uh, th- there's some athletes that, you know, the people I worked with for my thesis show, you know, nine years ago, I still keep in touch with some of the, the athletes that I worked with for that, you know, uh, because they, they have some sort of personal story where, where they have been restricted in a way that they just couldn't control. And when, when these performances or my artwork kind of speaks to them that way, we tend to build these like longer kind of relationships. And that's certainly, you know, like with the gymnasts, you know, it's, we're like two and a half years back from when we shot that project. And I'm, you know, I, I just talked, you know, I just like, uh, had talked to him briefly, uh, because, because the, there was a show in, in his area that the video was in. Right. So like I invited them to it and things like that. And, and, um, so yeah, it, it's a varied response. Uh, usually if they have something personal, uh, to connect with it, uh, if they, if they connect personally with the work, uh, they, they tend to, um, ha- have a more involved response. I, I would say. Well, and again, just in general, just that I, the overarching idea of being able to kind of manipulate and, and play and experiment, Again, I would just imagine that you lie awake at night thinking of, uh, uh, I don't know, just some image pops into your head and you're like, how do I make this happen? You know? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> that, is, that is, you know, and that's, that's what I really like too. I, I mean, kind of going back to my high school days of like jumping from one interest to the other. Uh, when you work this way, you're working with people, you're working with athletes, you're working with, with, uh, the, the production of the, of the documentation you're working with the sculpture, you know, like all these are like kind of like these segmented things that come together to create these, you know, amalgams that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, that I call my artwork. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, what do you have coming up in the, in the near future? Do you have a particular show or anything that you're slaving away for? Uh, so I just wrapped a show, uh, in Houston. One of the pieces in the show was the, the pummel horse piece. Uh, that was the, that was an older piece. Uh, I wrapped a show where I worked with competitive dancers and, uh, similar to the ice skating piece, I, I separated them from one another and had them perform. Uh, except what I did is I captured one, it was a two channel video and there was one dancer on one channel and another dancer on the other channel and they were synced together. Right. So you would see them dancing without each other, uh, but you would see both of them at the same time, side by side in the gallery. And uh, again, you know, similar to the ice skating video, it was pretty powerful, except uh, it, it really had this. It was really interesting to see, like when they would do dips or something like that, you know, like the guy would just kind of squat down and the, the woman would bend over and almost lose her balance. And, you know, like. Uh, it had a lot of these moments of like humor and, and that was paired with the underwater piece. So the underwater gymnast. So it was, um, you know, the combination of those two things I I think was really interesting. I wanted to root that show a little bit with an object. So I found these, um, I found flooring from a, a Texas dance hall that has been up since like the mid 1800s. And they had to, had to do like an emergency, like, replace of part of the floor and I was able to get my hands on some of these flooring from this dance hall. So in addition to that video of the dancers, I had these planks of floor that were all scratched up, right? Like it's, it's 150 years worth of dancing on them, mm-hmm. and all scratched up and, and just kind of like frame them. And, you know, that was, that's me like trying to root something back into objecthood, you know, cause the, the video I was showing was only video. Right. So I did, I, did that. And then, uh, in addition to the, that show, I was able to, we had a, a small budget for programming and I was able to work with, uh, a group called De Camera, which is a chamber music and jazz, uh, group. 
of young mus young musicians in Houston. Um, so basically, what it is is it's a it's a residency program for young chamber music musicians, and they um, they live in Houston for a year, and they, and the the people get them gigs and, and stuff like that. But um, I was able to work with some chamber musicians in the space. So the, so the art center that I was showing in has three floors. The first floor has two galleries, and then there's a second floor gallery, which is where my work was showing, and then there's the third floor gallery. And I was able to take a trio, a traditional trio, which is a viola, harp, and a flute, and I put one person in each galleries on the first and second floor. So, so again, you know, like, so two people on the first floor, but in separate galleries, and then the last person on the third floor. And I had them play their routine. Uh, it's a twenty-minute uh, composition. I, I can't remember the composer's name, but it's it's from the you know nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. They played their routine. You could barely hear them from one floor to the other floor, but but it was enough that you could kind of hear how things were working. It was a live performance, and, and I have to say that everything I've done to this point, like this was probably the most like awe-inspiring, uh, was being able to walk around, hear this beautiful music in a way that I have never heard it before. It, you know, you would walk into one gallery, and you would hear like, you know, if you could assign numbers to the volume, like you would hear 90% flute, 5%, you know, viola and 5% harp, right? Like, and as you move through the building, those levels would change as you, as you moved around. And it, anyhow, it, it was just, uh, I, I found it, you know, I, I know it's, I know it's partly my work, so I don't <laughs> want to sound too conceited, but I just found it as such a, like an amazing experience so we moved around. So, so this public art, um, thing that I'm doing is, uh, I am, uh, recording a string, uh, quartet, uh, and basically setting up a four channel audio installation in one of, one of the parks in Austin. And as you move through the park, each channel will have one musician on it. So I'm, I'm basically recreating what we did in the performance in a way, uh, so that as you move through the park, the sound changes, uh, and the mix of sound changes. So hopefully if, when you're in the center of the park, it's a perfect mix of all these things. And then as you move, you know, to the corners and things like that, uh, the audio mix will, will change. So that's what I'm working on now as of two days ago, <laughs> you know, I got like approval for it. So, um, that will be the next project. And then, uh, of course I always have things that I'm working on. Uh, and the, you know, I usually am working on like three or four things at the same time. Uh, that's, that's the most immediate thing that I'm doing. Just to go back in time and thinking about this idea of, uh, you know, I have to make this, uh, like art object as opposed to what you do now. Again, it just seems like there's this, uh, endless amount of possibilities, just changing contexts or, you know, again, taking uh, taking one piece and, and almost reframing it in a new context to see how that changes it. Again, it seems very, very exciting uh, comparatively to speaking uh, when you were 19, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, certainly. And, um, you know, that's the, the you know, an, a shift in that direction is, is, you know, I'm starting to work with musicians now and, and, and I had been moving away from team sports into like more performance-based sports, like gymnastics or dancing, ice skating, things like that. And I kind of like the fact that it's opening itself up more because, you know, it used to be this rigid, like make an object, work with an athlete, document it, right? Like, and, and now it's, I see, you know, I feel like it's opening up a little bit more to be inclusive, like other things so that it's becoming less and less about say sports and more about like just general senses of like obstruction or separation. Yeah. Very exciting. Well, again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, sit down and tell us all about it. Uh, well, thank you, David, so much for uh, having me on and, and I really enjoy the the podcast. So, so I'm, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks once again to Eric for joining me. You can check out his artwork at rericmcmaster.com. And once again, please be sure to follow him on Instagram at rericmcmaster. 
If you happen to like today's episode, we hope that you check out other podcasts on studiobreak.com. Again, we do have a big archive of 180 episodes now, so please check them out. Again, each of the interviews have images of the artist's work and links to the artist's website, so you can find out in-depth information about them. You can also find our podcast in iTunes. Just look for the iTunes uh, little link and click there. Again, you can subscribe to the podcast. And, of course, we always love hearing from folks. So if you could leave us comments there or just help spread the word, again, it really does help. So please do that. Of course, you can do that by liking our Facebook page and getting the word out. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break on Twitter. And new is our Instagram account. So be sure to go right now and follow us on Instagram at studio underscore break. I do want to thank Skylar Mail for providing the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork, his music, his performances at skylarmail.net. If you want to see some of my artwork, it's davidlinaway.com. Again, I recently, in the last few months, updated a bunch of new paintings there. So check it out at davidlinaway.com. And, of course, if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I hope that you do, please say hello. It's at David Linaway. And with that out of the way, our 180th episode is done. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you real soon.